Welcome to the webinar on Trump Biden Uncovered. What will the US election results mean to Canada and the world? This evening's event is hosted by the Pearson Centre and Democracy House in partnership with the Canadian Club of Toronto. My name is Andrew Cardozo and I'm president of the Pearson Centre. Welcome everyone. As many of you will know, the Pearson Centre founded in 2013 is a progressive think tank that addresses the big economic and social challenges of the day. And that in that context, we've hosted some 30 webinars since April on the broad theme of COVID and beyond, as we seek to find solutions to the many challenges in the short and long term. Please keep in touch with our website, which is thepearsoncenter.ca, for the upcoming webinars that include a conversation with the new Green Party leader, Anime Paul, on October 29th, followed by other uh, webinars in the weeks ahead on issues like jobs and infrastructure and energy affordability and the long term of COVID and the healthcare system. Tonight, the night before the second presidential debate, we have a very special session that focuses on the US election. We will talk about this pivotal election, this pivotal election in the United States and how the outcome will affect Canada and world affairs depending on who is elected. We have some 550 people registered for this session. And while the majority are Canadians, I want to say to our American audience, the election is not only about you, it is also about us. What you do affects us and many countries around the world. Just quickly on the format, we have an awesome panel who bring important perspectives to the discussion. Thank you for joining us. The panel discussion will last about 45 minutes, and then we will have time for a Q&A period with you, the audience. So please make sure you send in your questions through the question box, not the chat box, and we'll try and get as many of those questions uh, in as possible. This session is being recorded and will be posted on the Pearson Center YouTube channel later today. So for those who want to see it again, or if you want to tell others about it, uh, or, or see any of our past webinars, just go to YouTube and search for Pearson Center. Now, I'm pleased to tell you that our moderator today is Alison Smith. For more than three decades, she was a senior correspondent with CBC in many countries around the world. She was a Washington correspondent for CBC TV from 2005 to 2009, covering President Barack Obama's uh, first election and inauguration. In recent years, Alice has hosted three seasons of the Foreign Affairs Program Perspective for the political network CPAC, the American version of which is C-SPAN. She is currently hosting a three-part series for hot dogs entitled America Votes. So with that, over to you, Alison Smith. Thank you very much, Andrew. Well, we've got 13 days until uh official election day. Um, and already, uh, you probably know that more than 40 million Americans have already voted in this election. There's clearly uh, keen interest. Uh, and, you know, if you talked about sort of where things stand, uh, some more recent polling shows that Trump in some key states may be eating into what has been a pretty steady and well-established lead by Vice President Biden. It's not clear what tomorrow night's debate will bring, whether muting microphones will make a difference, um, because I'm sure you can't mute the microphone across the 12 feet that will be between uh, the two candidates, but it will be one to watch. Um, I would like to welcome our panelists, and let me first introduce Ambassador Bruce Heyman, who was the U.S. Ambassador to Canada between 2014 and 2017, and he's also involved with the Biden 2020 campaign. Along with his wife, Vicky, he wrote a book entitled The Art of Diplomacy, Strengthening the Canada-U.S. Relationship in Times of Uncertainty. And they have since founded an organization called Uncharted that's aimed at connecting diverse groups of Canadians and Americans. Elizabeth May is no stranger probably to most, most of you, but what you may not know is that she was born in the United States in a very active political family. Ms. May is a Canadian. She's well known as the former leader of the Green Party and is currently the MP for Saanich Gulf Islands. Jamal Watkins, 
is a lifelong activist, I think it's fair to say, but in his current role, he is Vice President of Civic Engagement at the NAACP, leading that organization's efforts to expand and involve African-American engagement and involvement in democracy. And I guess that means get out the vote. <laughs> and Mark Fagenbaum is a tax lawyer, and they're not as rare as you might think. He is a Republican who's originally from California, and he is chairman of Republicans Overseas in Canada. I welcome you all. Um, so, you know, it's very hard not to follow the horse race. I think I look at polling for the U.S. election almost as often as I look at COVID numbers these days. Um, so let me ask you first, Ambassador Heyman, what you think the actual state of play is and if it's shifting at all. So first of all, thank you so much for hosting uh, today, all of the hosts, and I really appreciate the time that you've all taken tonight to come together to talk about what I believe is the most important U.S. election of our lifetime and perhaps the most important election in the history of our country, aside from the election we had during the Civil War. How are things? Well, here's where we are. Uh, Joe Biden has been ahead in the polls throughout much of the year. And the president has, unfortunately for him and his team, has not found a voice or a direction to consolidate you know, his support in the Republican Party, nor has he found a pathway to inspire people for second term leadership. Yet, at this point, we still have two weeks to go. We have an incredibly difficult time in America, as you know, with COVID. And our death rate is 222,000 and rising. We appear to be in another wave, whether it's the continuation of the second or first, it just doesn't matter. It's increasing pretty significantly. We have enthusiasm for democracy at a level I don't think I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I find myself to be a student of this, but also a participant in the election process. And I was a participant at a very senior level in the Obama campaigns, which I considered to be highly enthusiastic campaigns. But I think the threat to democracy as it is, the threat to the rule of law, the threat to our postal system, the threat to how we treat people, either through misogyny or racism or xenophobia or closing down our borders or the comments that are made. I think people don't really feel that this is the America that they would like to have. And I think that the turnout is huge and we're seeing it both domestically and Americans abroad. So I'll leave it at that for now. We'll have a lot more to talk about, but we still have a couple of weeks and anything can happen, but more and more of the vote is getting banked early than ever before. I think we will have record turnout in terms of numbers and maybe near or at record levels in terms of percentage voting. And so that has to be a good sign for democracy. Let's stay in the United States for a moment, because Jamal, you're speaking to us from Washington, D.C., and, and are actively engaged in trying to get out, get out the vote. Do you see that same kind of enthusiasm that Ambassador Heyman referenced here, particularly among African-American voters? Um, well, first and foremost, Allison, thank you for moderating and hosting us. And it's good to see you, Ambassador, and our other colleagues. When we think about where we are in this political moment, the NAACP, we're a 111-year-old volunteer institution, nonpartisan, but we're not blind. And what we're seeing community after community is this level of frustration with what has happened around the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're seeing racial tensions being stoked like never before, at least in modern times, if you will. We're seeing community members really flocking to the notion that if they vote their values, if they vote and show up early, in many ways, this is going to hopefully shift the crisis that we find ourselves in, both in terms of the health pandemic, but also the residual effects in terms of the economic situation in our communities, education crisis that is looming. And so when we start to add up what it is that's happening locally, and the ambassador, I think, framed it very nicely, People are actually going to vote a lot earlier because of the circumstances we find ourselves in. In fact, you know, my ballot is sitting on my kitchen table, and I'm going to be dropping it off shortly. 
um, this week because I know that I want to vote early and make sure that my ballot is in and my vote is open. What's I think frustrating about this moment is disinformation and misinformation. And so while you do have this surge of individuals who are fired up and participating, if you go on any platform, say Facebook or Instagram, you can find just as many posts that are misleading or misguiding or offering confusion. And so at the same time that we have this groundswell of unity, we also have another side, whoever they may be, who are literally working probably just as hard to confuse the electorate and to confuse potential voters. And so my day job is literally about doing both and mobilizing and turning out voters and galvanizing that energy, but also countering the disinformation and misinformation yeah. that really is, is intended to thwart folks from voting and voting their values. So it's a very interesting time in, in the U.S. as it relates to this political moment. Mark Begumbaum, I want to ask you, because I know that in some swing states, in spite of the heavy turnout um, in, in early voting, um, much of that is seen to be on the Democratic side. And some Republicans have taken heart from the number of registrations in um, among Republican voters. How do you see the way things are at this point? Are you anxious, optimistic? I don't want to put words in your mouth. All right. Thank uh, you for having me and um, maybe a similar but maybe dissimilar voice on, on the panel here. Um, and. I think it's remarkable as well, the uh, early turnout. I think no one could have ever predicted this kind of number. So uh, for people like Jamal, I have to give him a lot of credit for watching out. And I assume he means uh, um, disinformation on both sides, I would think, that that's going out. So he's uh, being a watchdog for that and making sure people of all political uh, institutions vote. And so I think that's a very interesting concept that, that people are very engaged this election. And I think a lot has to do with social media and the development of media over the generations too. So what my, to answer your question though, um, the turnout uh, that I've seen, which is remarkable, may not necessarily translate into a win for either party. The way the system works that you could have a very, very high turnout for only one person in one state, but that just gives them the state. So this is actually more of a math exercise, I think, and there's combinations and permutations and people who spend eight hours a day going through all of the math. And um, and there's pathways for either par person to win right now. So um, no one's out regardless of the national polling. Elizabeth May, when we spoke uh, a couple of days ago, you used some pretty strong language and you said that the country you were born in is in deep peril. Um, I'm curious to know what you're referencing and also what you think the significance of this election actually is. Well, you know, first, I, I, I want to acknowledge I'm on the traditional territory of the Wasanic Nation and raise my hands to all of you, which is in the language of the people of this territory, um, a welcome, a greeting and a thank you. And, and to Mark, uh, I just can't imagine anything worse than being a Trump supporter in Canada. You must find yourself very lonely. So I want to thank you for, for being willing to join a panel where you're, uh, I, what I'm going to say next may um, offend you. But uh, as Allison said in our pre-conversation, I think that Donald Trump presidency is actually the single largest threat since the uh, U.S. Uh, Civil War to the integrity of the Constitution of the United States. Can it bear up? where a president appears not to have read the constitution, not to be aware of the limits of executive power, uh, to be willing to say things that are blatantly untrue, to have failed his country so deeply in a time of a pandemic, uh, to have fanned the flames of white supremacists for years now in allowing things to take hold that uh, I thought were in the dark recesses of history. So, and it affects Canada as well. There's no question we can't be self-satisfied or smug. We have elements of those movements within Canada, but I, I'm deeply concerned for the country of my birth. I am 100% Canadian. I didn't keep dual citizenship, but it's, um, and I'm definitely not anti-American. I love the United States and I, we are so dependent. I mean, as a parliamentarian, we all as parliamentarians, regardless of where we sit in the House of Commons, know that the US is a key ally, a key friend, and we need to maintain good relations. And I think our current government has done a remarkably good job of being able to, for instance, negotiate COSMA 
when we start out with a, a president who is extremely erratic. One moment he's friends with Canada, the next minute we're being slammed with aluminum tariffs, the next minute he's pulling out of the Paris Agreement and actually assaulting multilateral organizations globally in a way that is destabilizing. I mean, he's chosen his friends and buddies among the dictators of the world and anti-democrats and is, is eschewing the normal multilateral framework of modern liberal democracies. So yeah, it's a challenge. My heart is in my throat until this election is over. And then even after that, for what happens if there is a transition of power. It's clear that um, President Trump has changed the world view of American leadership and that there is likely, in a sense, no going back. So looking forward, what does American leadership look like going forward for either leader? Um, what does the new world order look like, Ambassador? So I think first and foremost, I think for us to be the world um, leader in the way that we, in, in at least some fashion, in the way we were in a previous administration, regardless of party, Republican or Democrat, I think we better get our house in order at, at home. And we have to, we have some repair work to do. The first and foremost thing that we need to focus on is this pandemic. It, it, we do not have a national strategy at all. We are not valuing um, our scientists, our uh, top Top doctor, Dr. Fauci, is is being disintermediated from the coronavirus task force, or at least from giving good advice to the White House as to the path ahead. So we have to do that first. The second, I think we've got to buckle up uh, domestically, economically. I think Jamal fra phrased it beautifully in terms of some of the other areas that we need to focus on. And then at that point, we need to reach out and mend relationships with our allies, because we can't tackle much of what we face in the world alone. This is not a by yourself kind of world. Pandemics aren't faced alone. Climate change isn't faced alone. You know, these are the kinds of things where you have to do it with, with partners and allies. And the president has, you know, shunned all relationships. In fact, I think that, and I, you know, there was a report just released by Senator Mendez, which I was quoted in today, that I think that the president, Donald Trump, looks at relationships as disposable. And that's true on the international side. And so where we are, if it's a Trump administration, it's going to be xenophobic, it's going to be racist, it's going to be, you know, we're going to be rounding up people and immigrants. We're not, he's going to use Bill Barr as his personal attorney. And we are going to have the greatest challenge to our democracy um, since the Civil War. And I, and, I, and I agree with Elizabeth very much on this. If Joe Biden is president, we are not going to have be able to go back to where we were because of so much has changed. But he's using a term build back better. I think that's true internationally as well, but it's going to take a fair bit of work. And we've got to rebuild the State Department, which has been so damaged in this process. So many people with so many years of experience are not there anymore. So we have to rebuild the talent. And then we're gonna to have to rebuild our embassies and um, we're going to have to work on diplomacy at a, in a way that we haven't done as a country probably since post-World War II to focus on building the alliances that are necessary to tackle the problems of the world. So it's a, I, I think it's a stark difference. I think, you know, this is, you know, and, and let me just say this, and, and I think I'm in agreement with a number of people on the panel. I don't know where Mark's head is on this. I think having a, um, a two-party system and a functioning two-party system is really important in the United States. And having an effective Republican party, whether I agree with their policies or not, that's different. But I need a party that respects the, the structure of our government and the rule of law and, and what our country is all about. I think we, we have a cult going on now. Uh, Donald Trump is a cult figure. He has a number of followers that are, are, are enablers, that he has a lot of people in the Republican Party who are bailing on him right now. You know, we have Mitt Romney. He was the nominee of the Republican Party not that long ago. And he said he did not vote for Donald Trump today. You know, we have Michael Steele, who was chairman of the Republican Party. He is supporting Joe Biden. 
I am part of the national security leaders for Biden. There, there are 700 plus of us, of admirals, generals, members of the uh, intelligence agencies, former ambassadors, who are Republicans, Democrats, independents, and nonpartisans, all for Joe Biden because of the threat that Donald Trump poses to the United States. Okay, and I, so, I want to let Mark have a have a comment here because I think it also can be uh, argued that you know, in spite of some of what you say, that for example, uh, NATO countries have uh, pitched in a little bit more money, that a reckoning with China was coming, coming, and that perhaps um, a tougher stand on China has opened the door for others to be uh, tougher as well. And Mark, how do you see America's leadership role in the world going forward? Well, I'm feeling a little bit like the bottom of a pylon here right now. Um, I um, I think there's a lot of uh, rhetoric and um, people, the, the doom and gloom around here is, is hasn't been since, I guess, Noah brought, built an ark of some kind. I mean, it, it's, it's, I think maybe the hyperbole has gotten a little bit beyond where it is. I think a lot of people don't understand the powers of the president and the powers of Congress. And, and regardless of things he say, I, I don't think he can change the constitution unilaterally. So, um, so I, I think we, if, if people were to, in the media and everybody toned that down and actually looked at the issues, I, I look at how the relationships would be with powers and when, not necessarily ally powers, but people who are going to come up against the U.S. And, and who are going to challenge the U.S., not necessarily militarily, but other ways, who's going to be the better leader that would stand up to them? And I think that's a, a factor of somebody we need to look at. I mean, the, the, the idea behind the president is, is one of the figurehead, but is also the person who's going to be the connection. And, um, and I think historically, there's been presidents that haven't had connections with Canada, have had connections with Canada. And so saying this is the worst of all time or this is the, the end of society as we know it, I think is probably very excited and it does get people out to vote. So, I mean, that, and it does give clicks on a page, but I, I think we need to look rationally at, at who we want to lead us in a time of trouble or in the time of the economy after the, the virus, uh, if and when it ends, who, who do I want to be in power to run the economy after that? So, so those are the kind of values I think people need to look at and less of the um, dramatics, we'll say. Elizabeth, did you want to comment? I could see your. Oh, it's just so sad because I, I look at Donald Trump and think, how is it that someone with actually no experience, it, it, meaningful experience to understand the economy, nor to understand civil society, nor to understand democracy? I mean, he essentially has an, an entirely earlier um, the discussion about maybe he sees people as disposable and, and relationships and allies as disposable. I think he actually sees things in a very very much from his reality TV show of doing a deal and you're going to do a deal. You're going to, you're going to bluff. You're going to pretend you've got you. It's not, it's not healthy in a multilateral context. It's not healthy as a way to treat your allies. And it's a bravado in the end. And there doesn't seem to be a moral compass, which is another aspect of his, of his conduct, which so makes us all hope that there'll be a change. And again, I would say, Allison, it won't be automatic that the U.S. is able to regain the prestige it once had. It's going to be work to figure out what is a new international order look like and how do we get to a place where, um, for instance, global response to a pandemic has to be global. Global response so, to the climate so crisis has to be global. Let me ask global. you this. Right. So let me ask you this. And this is based a little bit on what Ambassador Heyman had to say and also a bit on what Mark had to say. Um, Assuming the United States, no matter who's elected, has to think about what's happening within its own borders first. Um, that um, what does that mean for a country like Canada, a middle power like Canada? What role, no matter which president at this point is elected, um, what role does that suggest for a country like Canada? For for me, I would say absolutely. Canada has been forever the U.S.'s major trading partner closest friend and ally and essentially part of the same family. Now that means in the context of let's not just forget what's going on within the United States this year. Not only did we see the, the, the protests of Black Lives Matter after the killing of George Floyd, we also saw an unprecedented uh, a climate firestorm killing people who are our friends and neighbors through Washington, Oregon and California. We saw an unprecedented hurricane season 
on the, the eastern seaboard. The climate crisis is ravaging the United States. And I think for Canada, it means a willing partner and friend where we can resume the conversation where we left off and build our economies back better together by facing these challenges together. I, I think it's actually, we're in an ideal place as Canadians because we love the United States and a, and a ton of our families are just across that shared border. We've got to find ways to establish once again, strong, healthy relationships diplomatically, in terms of trade, economically, and in terms of climate action. What, Ambassador, you've been in the middle of that. I mean, what role does it suggest to you for a country like Canada? So I think Canada has one of the most important roles going forward in the world. I mean, we have these large powers that are now setting up against each other. And in some ways that puts you in a difficult place. In other ways, it could put you in a really great commanding place diplomatically around the world. And so I, you know, I, I actually, you know, know Ambassador Bob Ray, and I think he is going to continue to be, and his language, even this last week, quite strong and appropriate. But I think he is going to continue to be a great um, leader for you in the UN. But I, I look at if we're in a multilateral world under a Biden administration, Canada at our side will be critical um, for executing so many of the goals that we have, starting with climate change, starting the U.S. re-entering the Paris Accord, but also dealing with our shared environment that we have. We have the Great Lakes where, you know, it's water for 40 million people drinking water. And then we have the, the Arctic that is melting. But, you know, the Trump administration wants to renew drilling there. And I'd like to see that change. Um, I also see Canada's role in North America. Now, remember, and I was there in attendance for the last Three Amigos Summit. Now, you can't even imagine calling it a Three Amigos Summit at this stage of the game. That's the kind of language and treatments coming out of Washington right now, specifically the White House, toward Mexico and toward Canada. And make no mistake about it, these relationships are fractured and they will need to heal. And, you know, Elizabeth is right. It's going to take a while to regain trust uh, and it's going to have to take a lot of work. But it's going to be really important because of the issues that we're tackling geopolitically that will need Canada to be with us at our side doing that. And it's really hard for Canada to do that when the value system is not aligned between our countries with regard to the treatment of women, the treatment of people of color, the treatment of immigrants, the you know how we think about climate change and, and the focus on that, the treatment of of, of NATO, which I have some very specific views on about, you know, people coming up with more money or not. And then, you know, and then the operations around the world. And, you know, Donald Trump is clearly butting up with Putin. And, you know, this is this is very jarring, especially at a time where the Russians are being indicted this week for interfering in our election. And look, we have one last thing, and I'll just say it. We have more than 500 children who do not have their parents today because this administration stripped them away from their mother's arms and sent those parents away and they lost them. And so now we have more than 500 children at our border. This is, this is not the America that I know or I wanna live in and we need to get some serious changes going on very quickly and I'm hopeful that it's in 13 days. We know that, you know, to a certain degree, all politics is local, as the old saying goes. Jamal, I wanted to ask you this, because do you, in the voters that you speak with and in sort of the, the campaign that you're involved with to encourage people to vote, to what extent is America's role in the world play a part and how do they see it going forward? Well, I would say first and foremost, uh, the notion of thinking globally and acting locally is in the America that I live in, and in the Black community in particular, and when we talk about the bottom of a pileup, I would say that Black Americans know that all too well in very real terms. And so when we think about the notion of what was lifted up just a, a second ago, this whole concept of protest as it relates to police brutality, when you have the sitting president of what we call the free world, it's sort of discounting 
what should be the application of the Universal Declaration of Rights Thinking, not just civil and political, economic, social, and cultural rights, what we find is this bit of irony that if the rest of the world could recognize that what the Black community in America is experiencing is a fundamental violation of their universal rights, if you will, then there's a difference when our leader is not seeing that vision, or when that same leader disparages countries that have large populations of, of the African diaspora, it sends a signal that all of the trade deals, the failed economic policies that have created manufacturing jobs and jobs that actually keep the black community employed and communities of color employed is connected to this global framework that is completely offset. And I would say fundamentally what we're most frustrated with is when you hear, and again, we are a nonpartisan organization, C4 and we're not blind so we can speak truth to policy power when you when a president says that he has done more for our communities let's look at the past four years COVID-19 alone and the health disparities the attack on the affordable care has really decimated our health security if you will in the black community then when you start to roll in things like the economy you see that it doesn't add up we we actually benefited from the previous Obama administration and now that the economy is starting to settle Black folks find themselves in these low-paying jobs. And so when you start to add it, it's the notion that if you are suffering locally in the United States under a leader who doesn't see your community and value your community, then just imagine what that means for the African diaspora in places like Canada and other anti-Blackness then becomes a trend. Because if America is saying it's okay, the sitting president is saying it's okay, then it somehow justifies that democracy is giving a pass to foreign governments around the world who say it's okay to use anti-blackness to not only meddle in our elections in 2016, but to continue to undermine the fabric of our democracy, the whole Cambridge Analytica story that broke in regards to deterrence. So it, it's completely frustrating and at the same time factual that we are dealing with a leader that is inadequate, that drums up racial division. And in my opinion, and the opinion of our organization, is driven by power and money and not by making sure that America is the healthiest and the strongest that it ought to be. Yeah. Mark, I, I want to draw you in on this conversation because I, I'm curious to know about the sort of the core values that Republicans find apart from Trump, because we talked about this when we spoke on the phone a couple of days ago, the idea that, of course, we are all focused on the presidential campaign and that offers the, um, the great theatrics, um, but there are Senate races and House races going on as well, and that there are sort of core Republican values that have played an important part in you know, American civil political discourse uh, for generations. Um, tell me what the core values are that would drive, for example, Republicans overseas in Canada um, to vote Republican on the ticket this time. Well, thanks. I, um, I kind of want to set back and set the stage for that answer. And um, the ambassador and, and the member uh, said how they have to clean their own house or they're, they have to look internally at the US. And then later we talk about fixing some uh, Arctic ice things or whatever. So we have to choose which one are we working with. And, and I think that they were correct in the first step is that the U.S. needs to, has a lot of issues right now and needs to, to clear those up. And they have to be cognizant of, of other, other um, forces that are coming in. But I, I think it's um, interesting that we would expect uh, any country to um, not be friendly with another country, but not put themselves first. Like, like you wouldn't expect a country to say, well, this isn't really good for the U.S., but it's better for Canada, so I think we'll do that. So, so, they, so what I look at is, is how is the U.S. going to manage itself and on what, what basis? And, and as I mentioned before, the president has limited powers, uh, regardless of what, what's reported and everything, and, and the, the legislation comes from the House and the Senate. And the, the House is likely to, to, to stay Democrat. I, I can see that. It'd be very, very unusual that it wouldn't. But if the Senate remains um, Republican, which is, is, a, is a likely conclusion, um, then, then how would a, a Democratic president um, have all these dreams and talked about all these things that he's going to do, but be limited in his power, just like everyone else? And so maybe we'd want um, a Republican president. And the values I'm looking at are uh, the, the uh, vice president and the uh, senator said, 
flat out they're going to cancel the tax cuts. They made it clear it was only for the rich, but we all know the tax cuts affected everybody. And, and to say not is disingenuous. So do people want to all of a sudden start paying more taxes now? The culture of the U.S. is they don't like that sort of thing. Um, what about trade? We, we look at Canada and, and we, we again look at the character of the, of the president, but actually the trade policies, which are very similar between the, the two parties, but the trade policies would actually benefit Canada if, if it's a Republican uh, government, the senator, the president. And so um, I think we have to take the, uh, the face off a little bit of, of what we're all arguing about and, and this particular personality or whatever and look at the values of republicanism, smaller government, lower taxes, less burdensome. And, and what do we need? What bear do we need to put the country back on track, particularly when the pandemic's done? So many people are unemployed because of that, nothing that the president did to employ people. And, and so how can he put us back into, into, the, into the right track? So I look at this, who do I want to lead in, in putting it back on track economic-wise and, and building, like the, everyone said, cleaning the own house up? Hmm. Allison, if you don't mind, I want to jump in here and just say, when we think about this notion of the balance of powers truly being balanced, it's not true. I live in this, the city of Washington, D.C., if you will. We are not a state. Capita, myself, my family, our neighbors pay more taxes than any other state in the union, yet we are not represented as a state, meaning we have taxation without representation. So if we were to take Mark's line, when I hear the president of the United States say making D.C. a state would be a big mistake for the Republican Party, then that's saying to me, you don't care about tax fairness. You don't care about big government dominating my life and my world. You actually care about a, a balance of power that is partisan. And so when we look at these kind of variables, if we're going to speak truth to power, then we have to call the question, what is the motive behind policy decisions and leadership connected to this framework? And it's not actually about austerity politics, if you will, or making sure that taxes are lowered for the middle class. It's about partisan politics. You don't see me as a taxpayer, for example, in the District of Columbia, who does to have taxation with representation. If I could just respond quickly to that is, well, that's on your license plates or used to be. Um, that's been since John Adams was president. So I don't think um, President Trump has affected that so much. And whether I, and so you, you, a lot of people have very valid complaints about residents who live in the District of Columbia. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's a signaling virtue of any president in the last 40 of them that that should be an issue. Mm. Um, this is, we were starting to get some questions from the audience, and Mark, I'm just going to come back to you for a moment. In, this person asked, how has Trump and his Republican Party affected the conservative movement in Canada? And I'll come back to you, Elizabeth, on this one, too. Uh -huh. um, I think it's, it's more not conservative as much as it's a populist uh, wave across the world. I think uh, leaders are, are across the world and are, are, are attracted now in this cycle of things, and it may go back in a generation as well, to somebody who um, speaks more to them and not at them. And um, so uh, when we say conservatism in Canada, I'm not sure that we're talking the same thing as republicanism in the US, um, but but uh, using the same um, I guess spectrum or whatever, uh, I don't, um, I'm not sure it really affects so much because I think a lot of people do have the same values as Republicans and are just being not as vocal about it. And um, and then the same thing in Canada, a lot of people um, aren't as vocal about being pro-conservative, but vote that way anyway. So the best best polling and all that always takes place on the voting day where it's a secret ballot and people can voice their mind without being looked at. Mm -hmm. As someone still in the political trenches, Elizabeth, how do you think um, Trump's and the Republican Party have affected Conservatives yeah, and I, I feel I, I think there is a um, a very legitimate legitimate historical role for the Republican Party in the United States, and I think Trump is an anomaly. In the same way that I think conservatism in Canada and the progressive conservatism of Brian Mulroney and Joe Clark and and other leaders who really were progressive as conservatives was betrayed by the anomaly that was Stephen Harper, and we're not through that yet. Uh, the, the difficulty I have is lumping in Trump with Republican Party or conservative values. What I see happening to Canada, and I, I hinted at it earlier, I never thought I would see a rise in white supremacy in Canada. I didn't think I would see its, its existence. Trump has given oxygen to some extremely, and I, 
for short form, evil forces in the world. I don't think populism as described is really the kind of populism, the prairie populism that gave rise to Tommy Douglas. There's no relationship whatsoever to the brand of populism of uh, Bolsonaro or Trump, which flirts with fascism. So we really have to be clear in our definitions. And I think we have to hold out that Trump is an exception to the rule. I mean, I think he's, his personality and his celebrity and his willingness to say, as he did some decades earlier, if I run for president, I'll choose the Republican Party because they'll believe anything. Uh, his brand of politics seems to be, have more in common with P.T. Barnum than Abraham Lincoln. There's a sucker born every minute and Trump knows how to exploit them. And I think I think that this period of time for the world has been dangerous, but it has made like we proud boys. Let's face it. It's a terrible thing to have on our on our record as Canadians, but it started in Canada. Uh, we are, we are seeing systemic racism within our police forces, particularly anti-indigenous racism, which we which we must name and work on hard. We're not Im immune from these dark forces in our country, uh, but we do tend. And again, this goes back to de Tocqueville. So if you're going to look at a, at a nation and say over a period of several hundred years, we have certain characteristics that differentiate us from the people we love south of the border. We are more focused on what's good for all of us together as community, much less focused on singular individualism. And I, I hope we hold on to that as Canadians because it's not preordained. Um, here's another question, and Ambassador Heyman, I'm going to put this to you. Can electoral reforms ever happen with regard to the Electoral College? You know, in Canada, we're still debating proportional representation. Um, election reform is a touchy, difficult, contentious subject. Is, is that part of the problem in the United States? And, and is it something that can be, should be reformed? The answer is everything should be reformed as we can find paths to improving the processes we have. And I think that there are a number of states that have found a way around, and if we can get affirmation by enough of them, a number of states have found a way around to deal with, without changing the constitution directly, how to deal with the electoral college. And that is supporting the popular vote of the country as to how that they will allocate their electors. And only doing that though, if enough states all come together to do that such that it becomes validated. And so this movement is afoot and there is a process that could possibly get us to that. I would also say gerrymandering is a huge problem in our country and we're doing a census right now, which will then develop into reapportionment and how each congressional district or your writings, how each are drawn and, and how they are redeveloped within each state. And that sits for a decade. And so the key for us, I think, on the Democratic Party is to get as many state legislatures as possible so that we can fix some of the gerrymandering that had taken place in Republican legislatures over a period of time, such that we find states that are voting substantially Democrat, but have significantly less number of Democrat representatives in Congress. So that has to be worked out. But we also have, and Jamal could talk to this because I know, you know, his organization is focused on this, is voter suppression. And the reality is that we just need to make sure that the people who want to vote, who are legally allowed to vote, can vote and their votes count. And the Republican Party is doing their darndest, whether it's in Texas to having one drop box in each county so that Houston, which has millions of people, has one box, or dismantling mail services, or kicking people off the voter rolls, or waking up and finding people in Atlanta 10, 12, 15 hours in line to cast their ballot. This is wrong. This is just not how we should do this. So electoral form is a large topic, and we need to deal with how everybody votes all along that process. Um, I am hopeful that if we can get the votes out that we need this time, that we'll begin to make further progress in that path. Here's another question from the audience. Jamal, I'd like to put this to you. To what extent has the American media exacerbated divisions in the United States? Well, when you start to think about our media complex, if you will, 
you know, when you look at, say, Fox News, which is, you know, on the conservative side of the aisle, the CNNs and MSNBCs, what you see is news being reported very differently. It's almost as if it is the, the light-sided and the dark side, and you pick whichever side you want as light or dark. But for us in our communities, what we're finding is that when you start to do the analytics, the role, the role of the media in terms of perpetrating and pushing out anti-Black sentiments, anti-Latinx sentiments, anti-any community sentiments seems to be in accordance with the rise in hate crime. So in 2018, we hit a spike in the number of violent hate crimes. It was a 16-year high. And when you start to look at the correlation of what gets reported in the news cycle, it literally is about these racial tensions and racial divisions. And so for our organization, we have been a part of trying to counter this through the online versions, which we, we formed an entity called Stop Hate for Profit, where we saw that big platforms like Facebook, which is not a traditional, it's not a media outlet per se, but the ability to actually- How most people get their news. Exactly. And the ability for it to spin news that was deemed as being fake news, but not being countered or, uh, or taken down through their algorithms actually showed us that that's at the core of the problem. And so when you think about you know, hate crimes, when you think about this notion of fake news, what you get is you know, a lone wolf, say, for example, who was socialized in a Facebook group who goes on a, a killing spree in Wisconsin. And so for us, we're connecting the dots that we want to return to journalistic integrity, where news is actually being reported in a way that's at a, the highest standard and not utilized as a partisan tool. And that's the hard part, I think, about where we are is because sensationalism sells, you know, violence sells, all of the things that we are actually trying to counter sells. And so in this moment, we're very clear that news outlets have a responsibility to do things differently, to handle business differently. And until we see change in the political leadership in terms of the, the, the appetite to move in that direction, you're going to keep having more and more of what we're seeing now in the U.S. Hmm. Mark, did you want to jump in on that? I can see you. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about the electoral reform because I find it interesting. Everyone always screams when they lose, and, and either party, I guess, would do that. Um, but the, the electoral college is uh, uh, fascinating, and, and they obviously changed it in the early 1800s um, because the second place person used to be vice president. But, but the way that it's for the last three decades is actually, I think, favored a lot of the Democrats. When you think California and New York, are looking, you're looking at 70, 80, you're, you're going to get those. And then there's about 50 uh, votes in the states, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, those ones. So you're starting, as I say, on third base. You already got those. It's not the era of Reagan uh, or McGovern lost uh, every state. You just don't see that. So so for them, it, but what's, in, what's fascinating about the Electoral College and why I think it works well is that there, it looks at demographic shifts. Now, people have moved to the south from the north. And so now the South becomes an important part. They didn't want in history to have, uh, at the time, New York and Virginia pick the president every time. And, and with popular vote, we could end up having three states pick the whole president. Is that really represent? So um, I, I, notwithstanding your comments about gerrymandering or whatever, um, I, I know I think that there's maybe a broad discussion over the course of history for the, the but you can't uh, say just because it's not a popular vote contest that it's an unfair contest. And, and I think well, that's disingenuous. Well, I think, Mark, in a democracy, it's pretty fundamental that the the party and the individual running for president or whatever that gets the most votes should win the election. That's a, sort of fundamental in a democracy. And so it's it's a it's a characteristic of very few democracies around the world, but it is a characteristic of Canadian first past the post and U.S. voting. The problem of the quote unquote, and this is a, a lot of academic work on this, the wrong winner problem. The individual, the party that gets the most votes doesn't, in our context, not always does not always get the most seats, or gets in fact uh, a majority where only a minority, the popular vote, went to that particular party. Minority parliaments, of course, the U.S. has is a two-party system and enforced and hardwired in that, in that you register to vote 
for when you register at 18, you're a registered Democrat or a registered Republican. Most Canadians never join a political party. We've been multi-partite, four or five parties in Parliament since the early part of the 20th century. There's lots of differences between the two systems, but the one thing they have in common is perverse results compared to how people actually voted. But just for a quick second, though, that means that basically if I were running for president, I would only visit Texas, California, New York and Florida and give all the money to them, because if everyone in those states vote for me, then I've won. That's not what does that say to the rest of the population, how their vote counts, right? Well, right but now it's just Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. So that's where we are. I mean, you know, they're only visiting a handful of states. And you may say, well, they'd only go to the big states. Well, right now they're only going to a handful of the swing states. So just a few states are are actually, you know, picking the president. But that's, but that's a benefit. For yeah. Jamal, you want to jump in? Yeah, I, I would say that I think we don't want to miss the real reason why the Electoral College is problematic it's that the winner takes all in most states that's the problem and so in michigan if you win by you know 10 votes versus a million votes you get all of the spoils of that victory so to speak if proportionality was the rule of the day for all states relative to the electoral college then it'd be more balanced in terms of representing the majority rule if you will and so for for our perspective that actually ends up being problematic it's not to say that the small state bias is, 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 is the problem. I think that's a bit overrated. It's about the notion that you should actually be looking at whether or not the Electoral College actually matches what the majority of the country wants in terms of electoral outcome. And we didn't see that in 2000 or in 2016. And that's when I would say we have to question whether or not the system itself is actually operating in a way that benefits all Americans proportionally as opposed to what we're seeing now, which is, is this sort of winner takes all in certain states, which then it actually feeds into this problem of not recognizing the majority of the will of the voters. Okay, this is a this is an interesting question, and it, it probably is a good way as we head into the final few minutes here. Um, what is the future of the United States, given, and there's a premise, given that Trump is a symptom of the system, not an outlier? Here's the question. Jamal, let me put it to you first. Are there two Americas that are solidifying themselves here? I would say that there's three Americas. So there is the reality that, you know, there's a group of Americans who I think are longing for the days of past. And in some of those cases, it's probably a very mythical longing because, you know, America has gone through its struggles to get to where it is today. We just celebrated this year the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. So if you want to go and say that's when America was great, then that means more than half of our population didn't have a political voice. And so when we start to think about that, I think that's a reality. Then you have a grouping of folks who are really looking forward to how do you have a revolutionary America that's transformative, that all of our institutions have changed, et cetera. And I think for most Americans, they're squarely in the middle. Most Americans want to be able to provide for their families, have health care, have a decent life, part of something positive and progressive in terms of making sure that they can contribute to the global ecosystem. And we're being pulled by these two polar opposites in ways that I believe are unhealthy and are fragmented and really dividing us. And so when I say there's three Americas, the notion for me is how do we get back to the fundamentals that if we are going to be about the people, then let's find policy solutions and leaders who are willing to invest their time and capital to make life better for the majority of Americans, period. But because that's not where we are, we're fighting these two extremes and we end up actually hurting the majority of the population, both economically, in terms of policy, in terms of race relations, the list goes on and on. So for our organization, we're looking for leadership that is about policy solutions that benefit the majority of Americans that are racially inclusive and that actually lead us forward in the right direction as opposed to sort of catering to these polar opposites that don't really speak majority. Mark, let me put that to you. Do you see two Americas solidifying themselves here? Well, I'm hoping it does. And, and to um, I think the, the Honorable Member of Parliament talked about uh, the sore loserism, I think, was like the quote. And we have to be um, a little bit cognizant of the fact that whatever the outcome of the election, that the world has to go on. And we and the um, 
the government has to support the people and the people have to support the government. And that was the, the way the vote went on either side. And, and I think um, over the last few elections, people have um, moved away from that as if, uh, the fact that, you know what, my preferred person didn't get in. So now I, I, I don't want to, that's not my Liz, if I could just, if I could just jump in. Well, just to correct that, Mark, it's not a sore loser, Israel. It's an actual academic political science term: the wrong winner, meaning that the person who claimed the White House was the person with fewer votes than the person who lost. That isn't healthy in a democracy. But I will say, I, I, I hope very much that that this is the moment, or, which hasn't been discussed among us yet, which is, of course that this global pandemic is unlike anything we've experienced in terms of its wrenching uh, impact on societies. We haven't had anything like this since the Second World War. We have a moment here, which is a global moment, for, and, and some would call it a hinge moment in history, to actually rethink things fundamentally on the way, in the way that we did post-war, uh, our parent, my parents' generation, some of you are way younger, but the, the, the Bretton Woods Instant Conference moment. A new president post-pandemic with other global leaders can start reimagining the rules of the game for the economy, for, for social justice, for eliminating poverty, because we cannot, no society can survive if it solidifies into two different countries. That is not healthy, and it's not in the interests of even those within American society right now who believe firmly that Donald Trump is their savior, uh, as has been documented for years, people voting against their own economic self-interest by thinking the billionaire class is really on their side. This is a moment for rethinking the basic assumptions of what a government does on behalf of its citizens in a democracy. Ambassador Heyman, I want to give the last word to you as we uh, come to the close of this and ask you about the divisions because they, they are obvious. Uh, some of them are not new. Um, but do you worry that America is solidifying into uh, two Americas? So that takes us to the election. Um, the name of our country is called the United States of America. We have a president today who is dividing us. He is dividing us based on race, religion, nationality, gender, sexual orientation. He's dividing us our cities in the north versus our rural in the south. He's dividing us in ways that are solidifying in along this comment, this division of this country. I think though that the leader of our country sets the tone and the direction and has the ability to bring us together as the United States of America. And so it's not an easy task now because we are significantly divided as a result of this. We're even more divided, um, rich and poor, because of just tax legislation that has gone into effect. And the, the gap between rich and poor is quite wide in our country. Healthcare services, quite wide. We are divided as a country, but we have a chance right now to bring it together. I'm gonna leave you with one story that may give you at least a sense of the man, Joe Biden, who I know personally, and can give you an idea of who he is and what he's all about. Vicki and I had the opportunity to attend a state dinner for Angela Merkel. It was in the Rose Garden. And we were at that dinner and seated at our table, I don't know how it happened this way, was one Joe Biden and Dr. Joe Biden, and one Senator Mitch McConnell and his wife, Elaine Chow, Vicky and I, another couple. And we had given the toast, everybody stood up, Barack Obama stood up and to give a toast to the chancellor, Angela Merkel, and to the relationship between the US and Germany. And we were getting ready to sit down at the table. And Joe Biden said, wait a minute. And we're all, okay, Vice President says, wait a minute. We all wait a minute, we stayed standing. And he reached all the way across the table with his glass and he said, Mitch, to compromise. And we all toasted our glasses. I could just pinch myself. I remember as if I was sitting there at this moment. A couple, not a short period of time later, there was a budget disagreement, one of many between the Democrats and the Republicans. And Mitch McConnell was having a difficult time with Senator Reid. 
And he said, I'm not going to negotiate with him anymore. And they said, who will you negotiate with? And he said, I want to negotiate with Joe Biden. And they worked a compromise out together. Now, compromise isn't weakness. It's about working together and finding solutions and paths to success. That's the Joe Biden I know. And I, I am telling you, this is a man that can bring our country together. So taking back to your question, are we at a moment? It just depends who we elect as president in two weeks. You're a very eloquent spokesman for the Biden 2020 campaign, Ambassador. I appreciate your time, your insight, um, as I do of all of the panelists tonight. I appreciate your uh, opinion, your insight, your perspective. Thank you. Um, I'd like to welcome now my longtime friend, Howard Brown, who is uh, one of the founders of Democracy House to close our evening. Howard, your mic's not on. I don't think we can, we can't hear you. I'm going to give him a few more minutes. Uh, In a moment of levity, can I ask if anyone has any insider information on where the fly is going tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) Do you you think, I was going to say, do you think debates will actually make, this debate can actually make a difference? Uh, Mark? Um, I, I think um, none of these kinds of debates are, uh, people are going to vote one or the other. They've long decided that. I think in this election, as, as, as a few of them, the undecided voters are, are very, very small. Um, this is really all about bringing people out to vote, which Jamal's doing, which that's why I commend him for. Um, the, the, like, I don't think we changed one person's view today, to be very honest, or they're going to do that tomorrow. Right, right. Okay, I don't think, Howard, I think we've lost you. Oh, hang on. I don't think. No, we can't hear you. Um, I will tell you what I know about uh, what Howard was actually going to say, and uh, he wanted to mention Democracy House. Alice Tennant got it. Oh, got, there you got go. Okay. <laughs> so sorry about that. Let me uh, say that I am just delighted to. Uh, be speaking tonight on behalf of Democracy House, one of the organizers of this evening's event. And my job in two minutes is to thank our amazing moderator and panel and tell you a bit about Democracy House. This is the first public event for Democracy House. We are a new Canadian-based group dedicated to promotion of democracy and respectful political debate. I would like to thank our partners in this event, Pearson Fenner and the Canadian Club of Toronto, to Alison Smith, as she said, a lifelong friend. I want to express our deepest gratitude for being such an amazing moderator. To our panelists, Ambassador Bruce Heyman from the Biden 2020 Committee, a man we've long admired for his great contribution to Canada-US relations. To Elizabeth May, one of Canada's premier parliamentarians, who we've had the the pleasure of of watching in public life for many years and just doing a great job to, to advance democracy. To Jamal Watkins from the NWACP, your contribution tonight Jamal cannot be underestimated, and I want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for being with us tonight. To Mark Fagelbaum from Republicans Overseas in Canada for taking on this task of worrying, having to worry about being ganged up on. I thought you represented your party well, and you represented this debate well, and I want to thank you very much. You each very much shared with us your important perspective. But more importantly, we want to thank each of you for your long-time public service and your tireless contribution to a better democracy. We are all better off because of each of you. 
we in, at Democracy House are absolutely thrilled that you could all join us for this, our first public event. We developed this event for two reasons. We believe in the importance of meaningful discussion and debate. We wanted to promote respectful dialogue as it serves to strengthen democratic systems and practices here in Canada and the US and around the world at such an important time in the history of the relationships and the relationship between Canada and the United States, we look forward to continuing the conversation with each of you and with everyone on this call, over 500 people signed up for this call in the months and years ahead. We at Democracy House hope you will join us for future events. Visit our website at democracyhouse.ca and sign up for our newsletter. In conclusion, I want to thank each and every one of you for joining us tonight from the bottom of our hearts. We look forward to seeing you again. Have a great evening and thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It was a real honor to participate in this. Thank you all. Same. Yes, very thank much. You. So. Take care, everyone. Good night. Thank you. God bless Good America.